Welcome to The Difference Engine, the show for founders, funders, and the category curious. Don't confuse size, don't confuse valuation with category leadership. I'm not the only person frustrated by this. You disagree with my analysis. I do. You either acquire or you are acquired. Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. And it's proof that you're winning the argument. We all know history is written by the winners. Hello, Jonathan. Good morning, Paul. And what are we going to be chit-chatting about today? Well, we'll be looking at Zoom's decision to shepherd its staff back into the office, telling you how to get your blueprint spot on, and asking Elon if he's bothered by Tesla's quote, disappointing quarterly results. Yes, and we'll also be looking for the silver lining in the IPO drought. But first, we explain why WeWork was never going to work. A salutary lesson, the real reason we think WeWork didn't work. After weeks and weeks and weeks of rumour, WeWork finally entered Chapter 11. And we think it's a category problem. Oh, it absolutely is. There's absolutely nothing about WeWork that was any way different to what was already there and had been around for years. I mean, but there were a series of better, right? Hey, Paul. You just said it there. You know, we know in category, it's not about better or even a series of little betters. It's about different. They weren't different enough. And when certain waves hit, talking about COVID, sure. talking about you know, Regis getting their stuff together and all the competitors fighting back, you know, there wasn't really a category underneath all of this. None whatsoever. And that was their fundamental weakness. How many businesses have been established without a thought for whether they could supersede any business that was already there, apart from outspending them. And the other thing about WeWork was there was this pattern of this, this fairy dust of tech. People got confused about, is this a tech company? Should I value it like a tech company? Is this a new category of work? A whiff of association with tech doesn't do it. I mean, WeWork wasn't even built on a tech platform. It might have had people who were, who were renting space who might have been in the tech business, but that certainly doesn't make it a tech play. You knock it all down and there wasn't really sufficient to be different and the rest have caught up for sure. Something that really gets my goat on this is that WeWork, I think, has fundamentally done the tech industry a disservice because you've got a whole load of financiers and we know this happens during tech booms, lemming-like pouring money into similar property plays. And they are property plays, they're not tech plays in the belief that another gold rush was somehow on. But of course it wasn't. The problem is there's an opportunity cost in this. That money that went into property wasn't going into real tech category plays that would have produced you know, wealth and moved the industry forward. Again, recent experience from you and I, there are some really good tech ideas out there currently not funded. Why? Because people got burnt in nonsense that was just a little bit better. Ultimately, you know, do, do we think that WeWork was unlucky with the impact of COVID on its business model? Yeah, I think they were, but affected everybody. Has WeWork driven a fundamental and permanent change in the world of work? Absolutely not. Has it given us any of us, you know, something that we never knew we wanted or, or now cannot do without? Nope. Have they established a new category or even become the successful leader of an existing category, carved out 75% plus of the value in that category? Absolutely not. Our message here then is for funders particularly and for those starting categories is to just do the thinking up front. 
focus on different. And don't ever confuse burning money to attract customers with, with creating real value for them. Don't confuse spending investors' money on a chancy business hustle, which, let's face it, that's what WeWork was, with the investment risks that go with creating a new tech category. According to the media, Tesla's turned in a disappointing set of quarterly results, Paul. Well, that's right. And uh, according to the naysayers, apparently both revenue and income is down and Wall Street is pissed. I don't really frankly care. I mean, I mean, do these guys not realize that Tesla is the category leader in EVs and wants to stay that way? To do that, sometimes you've got to do some dicey moves, right? So you have to react. And I see that they've slashed the prices to get the stock shifted. They've dropped, what, the Tesla 3, the Model 3, by about three grand in the UK. But, you know, the reality is it's been, it's been slashing prices throughout the year. And it uh, can do because it owns the entire stack, right? But also it's got some heavy competition coming in cheap. I mean, the, the Chinese are flooding the market with EVs. You know, you've got BYD, SAIC, for, for those people listening in the UK, that's the people who are making your MG cars these days. And that that's serious competition. Yeah, you might wonder why some very ugly cars with an MG badge are rolling down the road in front of you, and that's all to do with pricing. They're very, very cheap. And nasty looking, but apparently getting better in quality. So again, this whole brand thing will not save you. And the fact that you've got more features than anyone else isn't going to save you. You've got to offer something radically different. Before we talk about the radical difference, you know, let's bear in mind that this price cutting strategy has been driving sales for, for Tesla this year. They're up 9% in their primary models, not little ones, the, the Model Ys and you know, the Model 3s. 9% revenue jump. That's that's not bad, is it? You're not bad for what is effectively today's Ford Escort, right? This is the, this is the base model EV. It's got a bit of a luxury tinge about it but essentially it's the car that's making all the money for tesla do you think musk actually cares whether whether wall street's disappointed most likely not what he does know is that he's a category leader and what you've got to do as a category leader is follow your blueprint and strike 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 again and that's all about executing a strategy that meets customer needs not the needs of a few spreadsheet monkeys on wall street he is moving quickly i mean it's not just about keeping your price ahead. It's about keeping those design standards up. It's about introducing new models. It's all about satisfying customer needs and customer needs that the customer may not actually realize they have yet. And neither of us are actually Tesla drivers, but I, what I hear from people who are Tesla drivers is the innovation just keeps coming. It's like Google Docs, where new features appear, you start using almost before you realize you have. If you own a Tesla, that software is refreshing. New features are coming out all the time. He's doing the right thing. He always seems to stick to his blueprint. Your blueprint, and this is the thing that Elon sticks to, is your not business as usual plan. And the thing about having a not business as usual plan is a lot of people that like business as usual won't like your blueprint. And the reality is, is Wall Street's going to thank him in the end when he maintains that category dominance. And oh, what a contrast to an earlier conversation we had today, literally speaking to uh, somebody who really, I think, could do some help with their category. Certainly and we could. asked what the definition of success is when Gartner mentions me. I mean, come on. That's almost the antithesis of the definition of success by our standards. That's right. That's where you are categorized and don't build a category. You've got to learn to earn.
All right, so it's time to learn and earn once more. Professor Simnet, what's today's lesson? You know, you've heard us talking about Elon Musk and the fact that he sticks to his blueprint, and that's one of the great secrets of his success. You might be wondering, what is a blueprint and why should you care? You're talking about one of the fundamental building blocks of category design. You know, alongside your POV, alongside your ecosystem, there's a blueprint. So we're going to talk about what that is. The way I like to think about this to start with is your point of view is your statement of intent about what you're trying to do in the marketplace. So that's really the what. Sort of the manifesto, right? Yeah, manifesto is a good way to think about it. Then the fro-twos that you develop out out of those are are your reasons for change. So the what, now the why. So your blueprint is your strategy to achieve it. The how. Right, and this is the sort of work that really product teams and strategy folks get really excited about because it converts the airy-fairy, what are we going to do, into where the rubber hits the road, right? The blueprint describes your category journey for the moment you burn your boats on that one, and you're totally committed to the category journey through successive strikes as you introduce and eventually dominate your category. Now, another way to think about your um, blueprint, it's your category, not business as usual plan. And because it's that, it must be overseen by the CEO with CXO responsibility for each part of the plan. And you can absolutely expect a board meeting where the blueprint is discussed in detail. Oh, there will be a number of board meetings when the blueprint will be discussed in detail because every one of those CXOs has to own their part of developing and delivering that plan. And there's a lot of inputs. Yeah, the things you need to be thinking about in your blueprint, the first thing would be organic growth. What investment needs you're going to have to put in other things to consider but, but which you might use investment money for are your acquisition targets because you may not be able to get to your category dominating position quickly enough just on organic growth we've talked about the ecosystem and your partnership structure is going to be absolutely vital to how you build out category domination product innovation this is really really important and you talk about product planning you talk about product development uh, in support of that, there's the marketing initiatives that are going to make sure people understand what it is that's happening with the company and its relationship to the market. None of this works without engaging the sales teams and all the HR imperatives you're going to have to put in place. Right. So let's just run through that big, long list of things that are included in this blueprint strategy. There's the organic growth. So that's the finance department. There's your partner team. So you know all of the guys that go speak to anybody that you need to build up a stack of capabilities there's the product team obviously with the innovation there's the marketing team clearly there's the sales team to get them on board fired up and understand where we're going with this and not to be forgot about hr where do we get the talent we need to drive this and when do we need to hire them do we go you know all in for senior execs early doors do we run with what we've got we've got some product market fit lots to consider and this all reinforces category being strategic and not tactical, and certainly not just marketing. And it also hopefully shines some sort of light on the fact that uh, a product roadmap is just one part of the blueprint. Traditionally also, just to to sort of talk about product roadmaps, product roadmaps often owned by product owners, often engineers, 
often that type of personality loves a better doesn't like a different very much because you're getting into uncharted territory and that's the job of leaderships which which is why the ceo has to be the leader of, of this particular initiative and so that is the job of leadership to bring all those guys together and usually we haven't talked about us in all of this what have we got to do with it so we're often called in to help with blueprints and the reason that we can add a lot of value is number one we're not employed by the business we will speak extremely frankly and without politics to say which of the various pizzas are strong and which need some work. Because we talked about all the elements that go into a blueprint. You're talking product, you're talking sales, you're talking HR, you're talking finance, etc., etc. As outsiders, we have a pretty objective view as to how things are going. And of course, we can pattern match to all the other engagements that we've been on and make suggestions that perhaps because you're in the game and you're doing the business, you can't see. And that's really the, the sort of value add of having a blueprint that's been validated by category designers. Yeah, I think that there's one more thing which is worth pointing out too, is that in any business which is likely to go forward to become a category leader, everybody in that business is going to be working 110% of the time already. And the problem is, is that something as strategically important and actually as time critical as category ends up getting pushed into second place because there's always something immediate that has to be done. The advantage of having people like us come into the organization is we can keep people honest, we can keep them on track, and we can do a lot of the thinking for them. And then they, all they have to do is start to work through that thinking with us, and that moves it along at the pace it needs to move along at. Good. I think that's explained what a blueprint is. Any other questions, you know where to get us. Just hit us up on the website or via the blog comments. So Jonathan, big news in the world of tech IPOs, Arm floated, they popped and they dropped, as they say. But is the drought in IPOs that we've been witnessing for quite a while now, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a really good thing. We are seeing, as the free money has dried up, a much greater concentration on where there is real value uh, in the companies that are being pushed forward for IPO. Now, this isn't what the media wants to talk about the media just wants to talk about when are we going to get all these lovely tech ipos see all these tech billionaires watch people get rich quick etc etc but we're saying the drought of ipos may not be the worst thing that's ever happened but why is that because what's happening now is that these are real companies with real customers real sustainable customers they are providing real fundamental infrastructure value to the global economy. You know, you simply cannot say that of food delivery businesses, most of which are still burning investor money to deliver every single meal that arrives on the moped. But I think the, the flotation of ARM is very interesting because ARM is a clear category leader. What's the category? Fabulous chip design. Not fabulous. Fabless. If you made out like a bandit from the flotation, fabulous is probably what it is. But I think the most interesting thing about ARM, of the many interesting things there are about ARM, is what might happen. Will it start to pull through other fabulous players into the IPO market that can support the next wave of technology. The hairs are racing on that one. Uh, there's already a couple of names in the frame. We've got to think imaginations there. Yep, famous British success, failure and success again, potentially company. If it was good enough for ARM to float, why wouldn't imagination and anybody else see that as the time to go, go, go 
for their IPO. Why not? It was um, taken private a few years ago to the tune of 550 million, I think. I'd expect Yitai Capital and any other investors uh, would be thinking that with a successful flotation and arm, they could realize a lot more than the 550 million it cost them to take it private. All right. So let's project forward here. Let's say this flotation of imagination goes ahead, value a couple of billion, um, much less, by the way, than, than arm, but they're away. What does that tell you about the category that these two players are playing in this fabulous chip design? Well, it tells us it's fundamental, but it also tells us that investors are going to look at companies with fundamental strengths rather than how many customers they are buying out in the marketplace. That era is over at the moment. So it's about strength in category. And clearly, I think the indication of ARM is that the category leaders are going to be the ones that are going to be taken to IPO. So if you're not a category leader in the current marketplace, you should be wondering whether an IPO would be the right thing to do. You should be wondering about anybody that comes to you and says that they think they can get you away on a public market. And you should be thinking very, very carefully about what category it is you want to choose to dominate. And of course, IPO is not the only exit for a bunch of investors. Last night, I was at a, uh, a London event with a lot of serious funders and entrepreneurs. Speaking to a couple of the really big hitting angel investors there, what they were saying is it's all M&A, forget IPO. And not only that, it's a great time to go bottom feeding because a lot of companies that thought they might IPO are actually grubbing around looking for a trade sale. People think there are bargains out there. I always dispute that. You know, you can't beat a downtown for sorting out the wheat from the chaff. Yes, there are companies that can be bought, but they're probably not worth buying. Totally agree. And so there's an IPO drought. You ain't going to IPO anytime soon. The bottom feeders are out looking for bargains. What's our advice to people that are not going to IPO and don't want to give up on their dream and they're building their category at this stage in the cycle? If you do have a good categorization strategy, stick with it. If you're concerned that the market is moving away from you, now's the time to spend time reframing what you believe your customer problem is and start to move the goalposts in the marketplace. Because as the next heavy investment rounds start coming in, that will put you in a good position to pivot forward. You know, in summary, rather than talk about, oh, all the dry powder that everyone talks about that is not being deployed in your business and not necessarily getting you ready for an IPO, which may never come. And you don't want to wait for the vampires to circle around and, and suck the blood out of your business. The thing to do is to pivot your strategy and rethink what is the category you're actually building to. What does the future hold? Let's look into our crystal ball. All right, let's gaze into that crystal ball again. What are we seeing? As the crystal ball is clearing, I'm, I'm seeing potentially some new entities. And what would those entities be called? Maybe Microcall or Orisoft? I'm not familiar with their work. Who is Microcall and who is Orisoft? Well, if you've been paying attention, Paul, there's an unusual new collaboration happening between Oracle and Microsoft. What? That's like Man United and Man City getting together. Don't go there. Just oh, don't go there. Okay. Anyway, this collaboration has a slightly strange name. It's called the Oracle Database at Azure. Zingy. Even more zingy. It apparently gives customers access to Oracle database services running on Oracle hardware and deployed in Microsoft Azure data centers. I am thoroughly confused. What's going on? Well, I think we need to look at this quite carefully because I think it could be a precursor to something a little bigger. 
Okay, so if we look back to the, the Q1 2023 results, which I like looking at, you know, I like looking results, bit of M&A, Oracle missed its revenue expectations and gave a pretty downbeat rest of your outlook, resulting in its share price diving. The worst one-day performance in 21 years. So this pretty nasty set of financial results, then days later, the former apps, tools, and database software vendor turned cloud provider, as Oracle was still talking about here, announced this relationship with Microsoft to, to, to co-locate a portion of its infrastructure into the Asia cloud. So... They're pitching it as this Oracle database at Azure will provide more options for Oracle customers to move their databases to the cloud. So you can see where the power's starting to move here. Yeah, I'm not sensing lots of power on the Oracle side, I've got to be honest. Well, that's the problem. This could be a prescient move because we know Oracle was once a runaway leader in relational databases and dominated some other categories in enterprise software. I would say even more than that. I think it dominated the way that the tech industry thought about itself. It pioneered hard-charging sales tactics. Yeah, it was one of the first companies to rip power away from you know, the traditional dominators like IBM and HP who had ridden in the hardware-dominated so a real era. category leader of its day. Yeah. If you look at its database share, it's declined from about 35 36% back in about 2017 to just 20% in 21. Meanwhile, spending billions on, on infrastructure. They've built a cloud services and license support division, and it's, it's, the most, it's the most profitable. But while they were doing this, you know, generating, what, $35 billion, I think, in, in, 20, in 2023, but they've lost big customers like AWS, Salesforce, and what they've crucially lost is that they've failed to establish new category leadership. And I don't think it's ever going to be easy for Oracle to re-establish that hegemony that it once enjoyed. But the irony is, you know, you mentioned Salesforce set up by an ex-Oracle sales chap. So it missed a category by giving the category lead to somebody that it spawned. We know Ellison still owns about 35% of Oracle, and he's been remarkable, but he is going to turn 80 next year. Now, Look at Microsoft on the other side. Satya Nadella, wow, you know, what a turnaround he has driven at, at Microsoft. You know, the, the share price has gone up many, many times. And, you know, he's carved up global cloud provision with AWS. But problem is, he's only got 23% of the global market share. And AWS has about 32 he, too, has a little issue here. How's he going to solve that in your crystal ball? Well, he could gobble up some of the also rounds. Ooh, this is where the Orisoft piece comes in, isn't it? My crystal ball basically says, how long before Oracle is absorbed into the cloud services category leadership race and becomes a side note in history? Well, that really would be something because what we would see there is a brand disappearing because it didn't play the category game as well as it should have done. Exactly the point, Paul. So, Microcool, Orisoft, anybody? Do you have a personal preference, Microcool? Orisoft, much easier to say. Sounds like a medical condition. But on the other hand, maybe Larry fancies having a Rupert Murdoch-like reign. He certainly had the wives. But this is about the most classic example of the idea that you categorise or you are categorised. Zooming back to the office. Zoom, the driving force behind working from home during COVID, is now insisting that a large proportion of its workforce return to the workspace. And you know what you're, they're calling this? 
an engagement hub. Oh, the irony. Really? What does this say about category authenticity? Well, it's a good one, isn't it? So you basically have somebody that created the category. To be frank, they, they stole it from other people like Cisco's WebEx, etc., and made it their own. In fact, I believe a lot of the team from Zoom were formerly at WebEx, but they certainly were the poster child for working from home, meeting, using video, etc., etc. And now this. How can you possibly maintain category authenticity when, let's be kind, partially admitting that your point of view is only partially applicable. Well, just to take the other side of that, you know, is this a sign of maturity? They've led in a category, they've certainly nailed it. You know, they've achieved that thing of becoming a generic. I mean, that's true category leadership. When you say you'll Google something or I'll hoover something up or let's just sellotape it, you just say, let's jump on a Zoom, even if it's a Teams. You know, is this more like they're being mature and realizing that they need to evolve, even though the timing's pretty terrible. To me, there's a real lack of joined up thinking here. Sort of smacks of Zoom being a little under pressure here. Well, there's a lot of layoffs going on. And a lot of people have speculated that the reason that come back to the office is becoming a thing is it sort of gives you a, a good reason to sort out those who are committed to the cause and those who won't, despite living in a 50 mile radius, ever return to the office. I, I heard this morning, by the way, that in the UK, there are only 3% now of jobs that are fully remote, and that's down a lot. Frankly, anybody who's ever tried to get on a tube train in London in the last month would, would realise that everybody is back in the office. And again, you know, just to give Zoom a, a little bit of credit, you know, sometimes you need to recommend alternatives. If you know that's the way the wind's blowing, Big Tobacco, for instance, suggested, you know, nicotine gums, and unfortunately for many, vaping. The alcohol companies today all suggest drinking responsibly. But I think the timing here just sucks. We know that, that Zoom's numbers are understandably down. It made a play that it would create an ecosystem yeah, what of What happened apps. to the ecosystem of apps? I was really looking forward to an app store on Zoom with lots of things, such as Squadcast, which we're using, but you know, it didn't appear. Meanwhile, you know, while I've been looking at the other way, you know, Teams, Google, Slack, and so on, have, have replicated the original category point of view. Absolutely. So, I mean, Teams just snuck up on the rails here, and there are, we should say, litigation. There is a lot of litigation coming for whether or not that bundling is a fair use of you know, market dominance, let's say. Slack was bought by Salesforce, smart move, and they have a Huddles product, which is essentially Zoom, etc., but you're right. Where's the POV? Where's the evolution of Zoom's point of view to say, we're responding to a new hybrid market and we have some new offers and we've thought about working in a different way. I don't see it. If they've been smart, they could have made a virtue out of being the best for hybrid, not just remote work. Yeah, and I think this is the difference, right, between marketing slash PR and category. If you truly want to own a category and talk about your point of view dominating in a market, then you do embrace change. You don't try and sneak out these corporate announcements, especially in a world where every employee's on Glassdoor, everybody's reading Fishbowl. It's a bitch fest on social media. And so you're sort of pointing to the fact that there's a little element of failure here, um, rather than leading on a much more positive evolution message. You know, I think the major lesson here is, if you're going to be a category leader, Act like a category leader. Keep your point of view up to date in line with the economic reality and stay ahead by continuing to strike so that you don't throw away the category advantage. And Zoom have just done that now. They have not continued to strike and they are in real danger of throwing away that category advantage, which is really hard one. Yeah, really sad if they end up zooming over the horizon. Indeed it is. 
Thank you very much for listening. And if you want to learn more about how to spot a potential category winner, then go and read our blog posts. The other reason why we work didn't work at becategorical.com. And if you're a founder having a few issues defining your blueprint, we can help. Get in touch with us. Details of how to do that are in the show notes.